There's an oft-told story, perhaps you have heard it, of the teacher who did not believe in God and not content to let it lie there, he discouraged his pupils in their faith in God. And one day he, as the Christmas season approached and there was a lot of talk about Christ and the coming of the Lord in Bethlehem, etc., he instructed one of his pupils to go to the blackboard and write this statement, God is nowhere. And the pupil inadvertently got the uh, word, the letters of the word nowhere separated between the letter W and the letter H so that it looked like she had written, God is now here. That was the discovery that Jacob made at Bethel. You know the story, how that he had deceived his father who was old and blind and stole his brother's birthright. How that his brother, enraged because of what Jacob had done, threatened to kill him. And how his mother had advised him to flee to her brother Laban down in Haran. And so he did, to await to wait until the fury of, of Esau abated and he forgot the terrible injustice done him. And as he fled toward Haran, he came to, the, to, to nighttime to rest, and so he laid down to sleep, not in a comfortable bed or a pleasant valley or a green oasis or even in a shelter place but in the most desolate, forbidding place that anyone could chance upon, a little rock-filled hill. And with a stone for a pillar, he fitfully slept that night, and he dreamed. He saw a ladder coming down from heaven with angels descending and ascending upon the ladder. And the next morning he woke to say, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I didn't expect to find God in this barren, desolate place, but now I know that God is here. God is now here. That was really the gist of what the angel told Joseph as he prepared to put away his betrothed. And the angel said to Joseph, Don't do this because this baby that is in the womb of the one you love is conceived by the Holy Spirit and His name shall be Jesus because He is Emmanuel, God with us. So that the message of both the Old and the New Testament alike is this, that God is now here. But is it really true? Was God really with Jacob in Bethel and is He really present in the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Well, consider the life of, of Jacob for a moment. Note that from that point in his life, God blessed him. He brought him to the home of his uncle and He gave him a wife and a family. And in spite of Laban's conniving, He made Jacob to prosper until he was exceedingly rich. He had maidservants and men servants. He had large flocks of camels and donkeys. 
But he did not only bless him materially, he blessed him spiritually, and God encountered him, confronted him in the brook Jabbok. And Jacob wrestled with God all night until this heel, this deceitful one, became Israel, the prince with God. It was Jacob's conversion, and it's nothing less than the mighty work of God in his life. And that God was with him is apparent in the in the reception that he prepared for Jacob. For after the Jabbok experience, he went on his way only to meet Esau. And he was scared to death when he saw him coming. Guilt has a way of creating anxiety in in one's life, doesn't it? Would Esau carry out his threat and kill him? He was frightened. But to his amazement, Esau ran toward him, embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him. And Jacob saw that as just another evidence that God was going before him in his life. And he said, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. And that's not the end of the story. For God was with Jacob, him and his, for the rest of his life, which is apparent in the Joseph stories of Genesis. For God raised up Joseph, the son of Jacob, and put him in a position of power and authority to preserve the life of his father and his brothers. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep on the sea and rides upon the storm. But was he really in Jesus? Is Jesus Christ really the incarnate Word? Is He really God in flesh? Is Jesus really God with us? The answer to that is a resounding, emphatic yes. We believe in Jesus for several reasons. We believe in Him because of His impeccable character. One of the most amazing things about the record of Jesus in the New Testament is the the account of the flawlessness of His character. And And that's more amazing when you consider that the writers of the Bible did not, uh, were, were totally honest in the portrayal of these biblical heroes. They painted them warts and all. And so they tell us about Noah's drunkenness and about Moses' pride, and, and about David's lust, and, and Elijah's fear, and James and John's self-centeredness, and Peter's inconsistency, and Paul's impatience. But when they paint the picture of Jesus, they paint no dark shadows at all. They talk to us about his trouble, and they mention his temptation, and they talk about his trial, but they never mention his sin. As a matter of fact, they paint Jesus, the picture of Jesus, as one of flawlessness, of purity, of character. This is the testimony of his enemies. One of the men who was crucified with him said, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion who hung him on the cross said, truly this is the Son of God. And Mark's Gospel records, that the chief priest and the whole council sought testimony to put him to death, but they found none against him. For they crucified Jesus not because of his faults, but because of his faultlessness. 
The purity of this man's life uh, indicted their own impurity. That was the testimony of the people who knew him best. His disciples were with him in the nitty-gritty of life. They were with him when the crowds thronged him. And they were there when the crowds began to trickle away. They were with Jesus in his moments of triumph, and they were there in his moments of despair. They were with Jesus when in his wisdom he confounded the religious leaders, and they were there when these same religious leaders sought to execute him. They heard every word. They saw everything. They shared in every trial. And this is the testimony they bring concerning him. Peter said, called him a lamb without spot and without blemish. John said he came to take away sin in whom there is no sin. And Judas, the man who betrayed him, came back to say, I have betrayed innocent blood. Truly a man who could be hated without hating in return, who could be struck without striking back, who could endure the circumstances in which Jesus lived his life and convince both his enemies and his friends of the purity of his life is no ordinary man. He is God, very God. We believe in Jesus because of the incredible statements made about him. Those who were with Jesus knew right at the beginning that he was special. He had a special kind of power. When he spoke, people listened. He had authority when he preached. He had a special kind of perception. He could look on the inside of a man and tell what he was thinking and what he was really like. He had a special kind of persistency. Brian Harbour said his forgiveness was unbounded, his mercy unlimited, his generosity was interminable, his love was infinite, his was a life and a love that could not be stopped. He had a special kind of peace so that when all hell broke loose, he stood in the calmness of that like God himself. He had a special relationship with God. He was not a son of God in the general sense of the word. He was the son of God in a special sense, the only begotten. He was called son of God 21 times in the New Testament, not counting the parallel passages. He was called the son of God by Nathaniel, the disciple, and by the angel that announced his birth and by the man possessed of a demon, and by the centurion watching him die, and by Paul, the greatest missionary of the church, and Peter, the greatest disciple, and by all the gospel writers. And these incredible claims that were made about Jesus are matched only by the claims he made about himself, so that when someone said, Are you Son of God? He said, You have said it. I am the Messiah, the Anointed One. So we have four options concerning him. He is either a lunatic or a liar, or the gospel is a legend and a myth dreamed up by dreamers, or Jesus is very God of very God. 
The evidence is conclusive. Jesus is God with us. The evidence substantiates the truth of both the Old and the New Testament. God is now here. But suppose God is really here, that, that God is really now with us. What significance does that have to our life? What difference does that make to us? Well, the first most obvious difference it makes is that we have forgiveness of sin. The word gospel means good news, and this is the good news that we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin. The Son of God has power to forgive sin. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sin. That word forgiveness is the word that rings like a, like a song through the New Testament. It is the impulse in which the Christian church was born. It is the word that the apostles preached with a kind of a delirious joy. It is what propelled it across the Roman Empire. Christ died for our sins. That that was truly God upon the cross, bearing in His own body our sin. And that He became, who was rich, became poor, that we through His poverty might be rich. Forgiveness of sin. It makes a difference because of the joy that Jesus brings into life. The difference He makes in life's anxieties. In 1247, a hospital was built in London and named St. Mary's of Bethlehem. Two centuries later, it was made into a hospital for the insane and was known for its noise and confusion. So it was renamed Bedlam, which is a byword for noisiness. From Bethlehem to Bedlam. Most of us live our lives in there, don't we? In Bedlam. Did you see the cartoon in one of the um, religious magazines of the man and his wife s seated in the living room and there was this gaily decorated tree. It was Christmas time, but there was no gaiety on her face. Just a frown of depression and exhaustion. And the caption had her husband say, Sure you're depressed. Tis the season to be jolly. Christmas can be a frantic time, can it? Herbert Davidson saw a typographical error in a newspaper. It was telling about the purchase, the school's purchase of a, co of a, of a copying machine. And they left out the letter Y and the article said that the, the, the school purchased a coping machine. Only, you know, the teachers can only wish said Herbert Davidson, that's what I want for Christmas. I want a coping machine. The good news, the testimony of the New Testament is that in Jesus Christ we not only can cope with life, but can conquer. God has not promised skies ever blue. 
flower-strewn pathways all our life through. God has not promised skies without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy and undying love. God with us means that there is strength for the way. God with us means that there is light for our darkness. Paul Haney has written, Jesus walked into the darkness of a sin-darkened world and announced, I am the light of the world. A new day has dawned. You don't have to walk in the darkness of your sin any longer, but in the full illumination of my light. One day three men came to, a, to the northern part of Wales to survey the great mountains of northern Wales. And for a whole week they spent in a lonely cabin of an old sheep herder on Mount Snowdonia and surveyed that mountain. They charted the contours and they marked the crevices and they sought the source of the mountain streams. One morning the old shepherd said, I should go with you today. You might get lost. No, we will not get lost. We have our maps and our charts. We can't get lost. I know this mountain track like the back of my hand. I know where the deep crevices are. I know where the bogs deepen. I know where the bracken covers the crevices. I must go with you today. You might get lost. We have our maps. We have our charts. We'll make it back. You have your maps. But the mist is not on the maps. God with us means that there is light for our darkness and a hand for the uncertain mist of the future. God is now with us. God is now here. But the probing question is, is God in your life? Though Christ a thousand times in Bethlehem be born, if he's not born in thee, thy soul is still forlorn. It matters little to you if he was born in Bethlehem, God in flesh, incarnate word coming to live in, in, in the world until and unless He comes to live in your life. And there is no strength for your way, no light for your darkness, no forgiveness of your sin until He comes to live in you. How does that happen? There are two things that must be done, we must do. First, we must turn to God we must turn to Him. We must turn away from our life of self-centeredness and selfishness and unbelief 
and we must turn to Him. The word repentance means to turn around and to, and to have a change of mind, a change of direction. It means to turn to Him and to pray with Philip Brooks, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. And to open up your life to allow Him, let your soul, your heart, become a cradle for God to be born in you. Not long ago, a little child came into my office to talk to me about accepting Christ as his personal Savior. He didn't understand the theological terms that, you know, that we use sometimes. I'm certain of that. In a childlike way, he could understand those simple pictures and illustrations that we have to offer. This is the illustration. He grasped, he understood. Go outside my door there a minute, son, just a second, and knock on the door, would you? And he did. He went outside, he knocked on the door. And I went to open the door, and I said, now you come in here. And he came in. And I said, that's something of what it, what's involved in inviting Christ into your life. He stands outside your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he knocks at the heart. That's what you feel on Sunday when you come to church and the invitation's given and you feel that kind of drawing, that appeal that appears in the pit of your stomach. In your heart, God begins to knock. And He's on the outside and He comes in only at your invitation when you invite Him in prayer to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to come into my life. He'll come in to live there. And so the heart and the life is shut up to Him and He's on the outside until by an act of faith one turns from his rebellion and his rejection toward Jesus Christ and invites Him into His life. You turn to God and you, secondly, you begin to follow Him. You begin to trust Him. You begin to live by faith accepting as His gift your salvation and your forgiveness of sin, accepting as His gift His guidance and His strength and His provision. So that every invitation ought to include something like this. Will you begin today to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now God is now here. He has come in the person of Jesus Christ to live permanently on this earth. The Holy Spirit, He now abides and dwells and indwells would you invite Him into your life? Would you ask Him to come in to be your Lord and Savior? Now let's be sure that we understand. Because I preached this morning 
to some who have never received salvation. You've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Are you willing to admit that you've sinned against God? Are you willing to confess your faith to God to say, Jesus, I believe in you as God's Son, only begotten, sinless and pure, raised from the dead and alive forever. I believe in Jesus. And will you turn in repentance from a selfish life without Him and in faith toward Him to trust Him for your salvation? Would you accept His free gift? Would you be saved today? You've thought about it some You've even prayed about it a little. You've talked to others about it. Maybe in your own home you've had invitation to accept Christ. I'll invite you this morning to come receiving Him right here as your Savior and Lord. God is now here. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus, your Son, our only Savior, born in a manger, living on earth a sinless life, dying on Calvary and raised from the tomb, ascended to the Father, coming again. This morning I pray, Father, in intercession for that one or two who has not yet trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. I pray that today he'll receive the precious gift of salvation. She'll come giving her heart and life to Jesus Christ accepting Him as the Savior and Lord of her life. I pray, Father, that You'll call us to Thee today, that You'll make us aware that You're here among us and that You have a purpose and a will for each of us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now look here, will you? We have three invitations each Sunday morning in our church. Public invitation for public decision. The first invitation is for you to come this morning if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior. We're not talking about church membership or being baptized. We're talking about claiming Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. We invite you to come today, men and women, children, accepting Jesus as your Savior, claiming Him for your life. The second invitation is for Christian people who feel impressed of God, led of God to place their life in a fellowship, a congregation, a church. You come to transfer your membership. That means just come to say, I want to place my life in this congregation and we'll notify the church where you're now a member. 
you'll become a part of this believing fellowship. The third invitation is for those of us who just need to walk closer with the Lord. There is public sin that needs public confession. So I want to come and rededicate myself to God. Claim cleansing and renewal for my life. These are the invitations that God offers us through His Word, through the church. We invite your response as we stand and our choir sings, you come.